Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, and welcome to today's Irish Tech News Podcast. Today I'm talking with Owen Hayes, the founder of Contillion. How's it going, Owen? Very good. How are you? Great, thanks. Just a bit about your background. Yeah, so I'm uh, originally from Ireland. I was born in Ireland. I spent about half my life in the US and started off as a chemical engineer and then swiftly moved into business and did a lot of work in strategy and finance and data. Um, and uh, when I left engineering, I pivoted into management consulting for a little while, which worked with Fortune 500 companies across four continents, uh, Nespresso, Johnson Johnson, Covidian, Thomson Reuters, those kinds of companies. Yeah. And then after that, uh, ended up at Palantir Technologies, a $20 billion, then $20 billion uh, enterprise data systems company in Silicon Valley. Um, and then came back to Dublin about two years ago and set up Cantal and Maps. So you were working for a while with Peter Thiel. How, did that, how was that? Yeah, well, Peter was chairman of the board. I wasn't working with him directly. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really interesting company. Really enjoyed their, uh, being there. The people were really sharp. The problems were really interesting. I mean, if you, I don't know if you've ever watched The West Wing, right? But there's yeah. this, there's this uh, episode in The West Wing where C.J. Craig, she's former chief of staff of the White House, and she's leaving the White House and a billionaire says to her, hey, I'll give you a billion dollars to solve any world problem that you want. And she says, roads in Africa. And he's like, what? Um, and she says, well, it's a deeply unsexy problem, but it's on what everything else depends. And in some ways, I think like Palantir was very much like that. They were solving a very deeply unsexy problem, just data systems, right? Yeah. Data integration, how data flowed through organizations and how you got to better business outcomes or organizational outcomes in the case of governments or nonprofits. And uh, that was really exciting to me, um, being an engineer, being somebody who was really interested in data and mathematics. So. Yeah, but I guess it's unlike other companies. I mean, you use data for nefarious means, they were using it for, for good means. Mm, absolutely. Um, and I think a lot of that depends on the, the specific organization, right? Um, in the case of Cambridge Analytica, which is like quite different, right? They were taking data, essentially stealing it from Facebook, breaching the terms of service, and then manipulating it for political ends in a way that was nefarious and, and uh, obviously supported polit certain political agendas. Um, Palantir is very distinct from that in that it was beholden to the actual company yeah. that they were working with, right? So if it was, uh, you know, the White Helmets in Syria, helping them try yeah. to get to the different war zones within Syria, which is well publicized, yeah. or working with Merck to do better drug discovery, or Airbus to build safer yeah. aircraft. So there, were, there weren't straight data like, like other guys would have No, 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 no. Um, it wouldn't have been uh, breaching certain terms of service and doing all that kind of stuff, at least to the best of my knowledge anyway, but I wasn't on the board. And why did you decide to go back to Ireland? Yeah, so uh, it was really more a personal decision than a professional one. Um, family, friends, I actually had never initially intended on leaving Ireland. Um, I'd just gone to London to do a master's, ended up in the US uh, with my brother and family over there for personal stuff that they were going through, and then ended up in management consulting there, ended up in technology there. Um, I had like a great career outside of, outside of Ireland, um, but always knew that I wanted to, to live and work here. So decided I'd come back and... Uh, set up Cantonal Labs not too long after that. The main thesis being that I wasn't seeing what I had worked on in London and New York and San Francisco, Palo Alto more specifically, uh, in terms of strategy and management consulting and analytical frameworks being brought to business problems in Dublin. I wasn't seeing that kind of work. Uh, so I decided I would create it myself um, and started working with startup founders across Dublin, in London and New York as well, on how they scale their companies globally. How has that been going for you so far? 
Yeah, really good. Uh, met a lot of really interesting companies, really interesting founders. Um, Ireland has this very unique uh, space in which we have this highly educated population, people that are really creative, really talented, um, but don't have access to the things that other commercial centers do. So yeah. they don't have like huge amounts of capital coming at them, like Peter Thiel, right, signing yeah. billion dollar checks. Um, they don't have uh, analysts like me, just like waving around the place. Like in yeah. London, you throw a rock and you hit an investment banker, right? And you have somebody who can build a very sophisticated financial model for you. Here, it's not so easy to come by, and that's one of the problems that I'm trying to solve for. So, you know, about, or about a year and a half into the company now, and uh, our best quarter yet has been this quarter. Q4 is supposed to be even better. Um, based on the pipeline of, of deals that we have coming through. So, yeah, it's going great. Um, and I'm really excited to continue making that change in the ecosystem. So you focus mainly on startups? Yes, yeah. Um, and I think probably the best way of, of talking about it is that the real value that I'm going to bring to any business analytically is going to be helping decision makers. So helping them make better decisions, whether that's as a kind of financial analyst or a strategy analyst, or talking about hiring or talking about business development and sales strategies. Um, in, you know, as much as I would love to work with, say, LinkedIn or Google in Ireland, their decision makers aren't here. Their decision makers are in places like yeah. Mountain View and San Francisco and San Jose. So, um, so I'm not never going to be unless I start flying over and start counseling Larry Page, which I'm sure he has plenty of counselors and advisors. Um, I, I think I'm right for right now. I'm going to be investing in the Dublin ecosystem. The other thing is that the Dublin ecosystem specifically uh, probably needs it more yeah. in that like there's not a history here of having strategy teams like they have in Silicon Valley, right? And that's part of the reason why I set up the business or probably the main reason I set up the business was that these kinds of skills, this kind of support shouldn't be exclusive to just Silicon Valley and yeah. the founders and executives there. It should be distributed across the world. Um, Dublin is a really unique case where it made sense for me to, to start here and to test it in kind of a petri dish, petri dish conditions yeah. um, and then go to other commercial centers that may not have as much access to this kind of talent. And I guess when you reach a given startup, Fact, but you can you can give them date that they're what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, like there's there's a huge body of best practices, yeah. and I would say as well, it's really important when people sometimes talk about Silicon Valley in particular. Um, there are certain idiosyncrasies to Silicon Valley that aren't applicable to Dublin, yeah. right? One of them is the absolute huge amount of capital that's available. They can take huge risks. Like, it's easy for Facebook to not make much money or not make profit for a really long time. Same with Amazon, same with loads of other com com companies. Um, whereas in Dublin, yeah. <laughs> investors are looking for a return, like, quite quickly by comparison. Um, so it's important to understand those kind of things, while at the same time understanding the best practices, right? Like, Jeff Bezos didn't run at a loss for as long as he did for or as long as he is um, because he just wanted to or because there was a huge amount of money he was making very intelligent financial decisions um, and so we can use those same frameworks we can use those same decision making um, uh, kind of ways of thinking about the world uh, available to entrepreneurs in Ireland and Dublin and I guess if you start out it's bootstrapping something mm. you can basically help more come that because you, you can make a decision that can make sure the money goes a long way 100% I mean this is something and it's not even the venture founded companies that I work with which is most of my clients but even the venture founded companies that I work with are cognizant very much of cash burn right uh, they need to understand when they're going to run out of money how much runway they have in the bootstrap scenario generally speaking you're a lot more aware of it right um, uh, but I do work with bootstrap companies and in those instances you are trying to make 
very intelligent decisions because you have to place a bet essentially on where you're going to make the most money and what's going to minimize your yeah. cash burn. Um, so if I land X client, how many people do I need to hire to implement that deal, et cetera, et cetera? Or how many people do I need to hire to build this feature in the product for this particular enterprise customer that I got? Yeah. Um, those are the kinds of decisions that are that can actually make or break a company and make or break the bank balance on which you're going to rely on the future growth. And also if you can be scalable. So you can scale up and down. So if you realize that you're going to wrap up the scale up because you got a client, you know, it's going to come in making more money. And then you realize in short times of the year, you're going to make less money. So you scale down at the level. Maybe your product only works during basically school or college term. And then when summertime comes, you can sort of scale down so that you don't have that to worry about. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think that the, you know, I generally work with B2B companies. Uh, it's kind of a feature of the Dublin yeah. ecosystem in general that most of the companies here are B2B companies. Um, but they do have seasons, right? Some of them are servicing, say, retail or marketing yeah. organizations. Um, Q4 is a really big, big deal for a lot of their yeah. customers. Um, so how do you scale to, to work with them and then scale down and, and all those kinds of things? Maybe you just end up working 20-hour days and that's fine too. That's kind of the startup life, right? Um, but making those intelligent decisions, not just for seasonality, but also responding to what the market in more general terms needs, especially as you go to new markets like the US, which is almost all my clients are, are working with. Right and I now. guess because you work in America, you know the mentality and how it works there. So when you deal with the clients, I want to go to America, you can tell them I've been there, I've worked there. I know how it works. It's not like Arnold, it's totally different. Yeah, yeah. There's really substantial differences. Um, I think one of the one of the things that I've discovered having worked with a lot of entrepreneurs here, and, and bearing in mind, I spent my almost my entire professional career outside of Dublin, outside of Ireland, right? So my very much my DNA is how executives respond to decisions and how they think about decisions in these Fortune 500 companies and Silicon Valley companies, um, and very particularly in the American professional tradition, right? So when business-to-business -business tech companies from Dublin are trying to sell, say, to an insurance company in the U.S. or to a manufacturer in the U.S. or whatever it is, um, they're actually uh, not necessarily cognizant of, well, how does a deal conversation work here? How does a negotiation happen? Uh, who's the decision maker? How do I think about the different levers of uh, somebody uh, understanding my product but also making the decision to buy it? Um, whereas here in Dublin, what I've noticed, and I'm, I'm still only back about two years, so uh, this is just a, a cursory uh, analysis, but it's very much relationship-based. People will often end up with deals or they'll end up with uh, landing business based off of the existing relationships. Whereas in the US, it's a lot more about the dollars and cents. You have to prove the ROI. You have to navigate the organization. You have to rally several executives around the table and get them all to agree before they send it to the CEO. Right. Um, so there's a very different, uh, say, sales process and sales motion, particularly in business development, but also in terms of when you're dealing with investors. Like, what's the deck that they want to see? Right. Um, here it's quite different from what you're going to see in the U.S. Uh, and like to you know to your point about Peter Thiel, one of my friends raised money from him, um, and like he just sat down to Peter Thiel and he said, "Look, I know we said we talked for an hour. I only have thirty minutes. I'll give you the the talking points of the company." Um, now, pretty high risk play to get like money from Peter Thiel, but he had like a line you know a mile long of investors looking to talk to him um, and at the end of the conversation Peter Thiel wrote him a check uh, that's a very different kind of way of engaging than yeah. what you would find here 
Um, and so that's a lot of the value of what I bring to the table is just telling people about, okay, well, this is what they're going to expect from you when you walk into that room. And this is what the board of your company or, or sorry, not your company, but your customer's company might be looking for if it's a huge partnership. Except that's the way you say you're like a career coach. You tell people what to do in their career. I think in some senses it can be like that. Um, there's an element to it which it's really about the people who I end up working with the most and, and the clients that, uh, that I work with the most are the ones that have had no exposure in their career to this kind of way of operating. And so I'm trying to bring my experience to bear with them and help them navigate that. Um, it's a little less than a career coach in that I'm not just purely providing advice. Um, I very often will work on projects in that I'll build a financial model, I'll build a deck, I'll have the business development conversation, I'll negotiate the terms of the deal for you, um, those kinds of things. So uh, it's a little bit more uh, tactical and a little bit more operational than... More hands-on? Yeah, more hands-on. In the past, I've seen this in Ireland. I've heard about it in America, but no one's going to know this until now. So in one way in Ireland, that's, this is a game changer. And uh, I think more startups know about you, the more chance they have the success. Because a lot of startups are, are failing because they're not sure what to do next. And, and a lot of them I've seen, are, some are thinking, oh, in five years I, I want to be a unicorn. But they're not thinking in taking steps. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, you know, and that's absolutely what I observed as well when I set up the company, was essentially this didn't exist here. And there's a certain challenge to that as well, being very frank. I mean, as well as things are going, I'm in some ways having to convince people of something they don't know that they need, right? Um, Whereas in the US, you know, I say, okay, I'm like a McKinsey for startups. I say that in New York, I say that in San Francisco, I say that in London, people get it. Uh, I say that here and people just ask me, who's McKinsey? So the differences can be very, very stark and, and to some extent, you know, talking to people and educating people on the fact that there is a whole class of tools there that are available to you to make better decisions, to present yourself better, to land bigger deals, to negotiate better terms, to get uh, better customers, that, that is there. Um, I guess the problem is when, when you go to college here or, or anywhere here and you're in start, you never once been taught about what you guys offer as a service. It's not, mm. it's not part of it, so they're not used to it. Whereas in America, I, I presume that when they go to a, any sort of campus or, or any college, this is part of the thinking. Totally. I don't, I'm, I'm over-indexing now on like yeah. elite universities in the U.S., but that was primarily from the people that I worked with and, and where I hired from myself. So, but, you know, the kids that were coming out of Stanford, like they understood venture capital, right? Yeah. Like they just, not only because they had been taught about it, but also because their friend's dad was a venture capitalist and like their uncle was an investment banker and came over for dinner and talked about these things. Whereas we don't really have that here, right? Yeah. Um, and so the, the natural awareness that people would just come out of with at 21, 22, walk into a place like Palantir or, walk into, or start a company and go to Peter Thiel and ask for money, um, they just had naturally had this awareness um, of not just the world and how it operated, but also these set of tools in terms of making decisions um, on financial analysis or strategy or sales uh, that you might not get educated about here. And certainly, you know, I went to London Business School to get a good understanding of those kinds of things, right? Uh, management consulting, investment banking, private equity, venture capital. Um, if I hadn't gone there, I'm not sure I would have had as yeah. good an understanding of how the global corporate world operates and, and certainly where how the international finance and international capital operates. I guess when you're, if you're from abroad, you're, you're taught to have the balls to go and ask the money. Whereas in Ireland, you have to go to and say somebody, I invest in my company, this is why. We don't really do that. And the investors, and a lot of VCs in Ireland are used to come up and, and, and 
selling stuff. Whereas in America, for example, if you go to Hollywood and you, you're in a restaurant, many times you see a guy who's, who's serving you and also oh, also I'm an actor and hoping that someone will spot him. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a certain level of that. I mean, I will say one thing about the Irish entrepreneurs I work with. They're almost universally great relationship yeah. owners, right? Like Irish people, by it's, and I think it is just a cultural thing, like we're great salespeople. Uh, I used to get told it all the time in the US like they were like oh you're just so good at interacting with people and getting people to like you and uh, I didn't I don't think I'm in any way exceptional versus my Irish peers I think actually there's everybody that I knew was kind of like that Um, in fact most of them were much better at getting along with people than I was Um, whereas when I went to the US it was kind of exceptional so the one thing I would say is that we're not necessarily used to talking about ourselves in terms of myths and one of the things I was actually thinking about this this morning, uh, one of my friends was uh, just tweeting about how he hadn't really catalogued the great achievements he had made over his career. And he's yeah. Richard who went to Oxford and he was working for me and blah, blah, blah. Um, but one of the really interesting things about that is that it was something that he thought about. How do I talk about the myth of me? How yeah. do I talk about the myth of my company? Um, whereas, well, I don't think we really think that way. And honestly, if you went into most investors here in Ireland, they probably look at you with a very cynical eye and be like, okay, what's this guy trying to do yeah. pulling the wool over my eyes? Whereas when you go in and you talk to people like Peter Thiel and you go in and you talk to Sequoia or you go in and you talk to Palantir, even interviewing, they are looking for that myth and they want to believe it, right? They want to believe that you are some legend yeah. that's pulled themselves up by their bootstraps um, from the west coast of Ireland and just taken over the world and stormed all the way home, you know? Um, so in some ways, I think it's, uh, it's a, a learned lesson of how we talk about ourselves uh, that's in the most compelling way. Um, and I can certainly spin you a yarn. Now, none of it is necessarily untrue about myself, um, but it's just not really in us yeah. to like talk at the very first instance in the first five minutes about how great we are. Right? Like, meet the man, the legend. How many people mm. actually, oh, oh, and I will actually go and say that. Mm. Unless, you, unless you're drunk, you wouldn't go up to someone who goes, meet the man, meet the legend. <laughs> I'm going to change your life in two minutes. So, yeah. think of that. That's me yeah. watching a Hollywood movie. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it was a real lesson for me. You know, I interviewed quite a lot of people at Palantir and I was doing a lot of work in terms of trying to steal the company. Um, and uh, it was really mad to me you know there were these 21 year olds and they would tell me their life story about how they skipped this grade when they were seven and then they they ended up doing this in school and they were second place in this and they were a gymnastics champion in college and all this kind of stuff and it sounded super super impressive but that was within the first five minutes of meeting them right and then what was strange about it was when I thought about my own story I was like I'm not necessarily saying that I'm amazing, but there were certain things that I had done that, yeah, I could actually have told a good story too, yeah. you know? Um, and I think that that's very true of a lot of people in Ireland, but we're not really incentivized to talk about ourselves that way, and, and certainly culturally it's not a norm, right? Yeah. Um, whereas in the U.S., they're just so good at it, right? Uh, yeah. And they know exactly when to turn it on. A couple years ago, I was at an African event with one of my friends, and uh, it was basically, you, you never actually try and get any contacts. And my friend was looking at a business, you didn't want to do so I said, I'll take you along, and it was in some bar uh, uh, near Howes Cross. Mm. So I went along with him, and, and then for about an hour, he just sat at the bar having things. He's watching me work the room. He goes, how the hell do you work the room? He <laughs> says, well, if you don't work the room, you're not going to get make any contacts, make any businesses. Now, I might be somebody right now that doesn't uh, need, need of my services, but I guarantee mm. in a year's time, they'll come back to me. In fact, that I gave them a card and spoke to them, and, uh, and all that. That's what it takes. And, and he didn't, he coun't understand that. I said, well, that's how business is. If you go to America, 
but always work in the room. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think, so I, when I was in London Business School, a venture capitalist came in and talked to us and he said, look, the most viable thing you're going to build in your career is going to be your network. And I remember thinking at the time, that yeah. seems kind of strange, like the most viable thing. Um, and then I went to work somewhere and of course my network didn't matter a damn. Yeah. It was like I was an analyst and they were just trying to get me to build an Excel file or build a PowerPoint deck, whatever it was. Um, and what I've learned now towards not the more senior stages of my career where I've started a company and I'm very much reliant yeah. on business development and, and, and hiring and all those kinds of things that actually my network is probably the most viable asset that I have um, and I'm lucky in the sense that I've worked in Palo Alto and New York yeah. and London and I have quite a large expansive network across the world that I can leverage um, but it was really from having those substantive conversations and, and you know sometimes it's just happenstance you know somebody yeah. says oh I really want to talk to somebody that's in the insurance market and it's like oh yeah I have like three friends that one I used to work with there one I used to work with there one went to college with me one's doing this really interesting startup thing you know and connecting people Um, and that's actually one of the things that I found with my clients is first of all I can provide that value I can put them in contact with people that they may not have otherwise had exposure to but also my best clients are brilliant networkers Right, like they before they go into the the meeting to to land the contract with the with the customer, um, they've talked to their boss and they've talked to their boss's yeah. boss and they've talked to the chairman of the board and whatever it is and they've tried to tried to build a kind of a a network of pressure on that deal um, yeah. and, and and land it. So, um, yeah, networking is like absolutely critical and I think I think there's sometimes. I struggled with this early on in my career. Sometimes the best business advice and some of the best career advice is actually geared towards executives and towards senior people. I'm not saying to junior people, look, you need to spend 50% of your time networking. You probably should be spending 90% of your time doing your job. Um, But if you can spend the other part of your time putting yourself in positions where you're meeting interesting people, especially people that are doing interesting things, things that are interesting to you. That was yeah. another part of this this piece from the venture capitalist at the time. I was thinking about becoming an investment banker because um, I was really interested in economics, really interested in finance. It was just after the economic crash, and I was like, how in God's name does all this work? Uh, and I thought, well, I'll, maybe I'll go learn how to do it. And um, and I, I just asked, he was just talking about networking. I was like, what if you're networking with people that you don't really like? And he said, well, that means you're going into the wrong business. And so I think there's a really important piece to that when you're a junior of like, you know, allowing yourself to network with the people that you do find interesting and getting involved in the things that you find uh, really fascinating. Um, And that will kind of lead you a little bit better in the career path. Um, sometimes we, t- we talk too much about what senior executives need to do and a yeah. lot less about what junior executives need to do. Early, but three or four years ago, I was telling them you should be in LinkedIn. Mm. LinkedIn is, is how you're going to start networking. And every single job I've gotten in the past three years has been, has been still contact me via LinkedIn via because mm. they see you on following. And if you're, if you're linked with a certain person on LinkedIn or networking with a certain person, oh, he, he knows this person. Mm. Then the boy just gives you more of an name. Now, he doesn't didn't quite get that. Mm. And mm. I'm, I'm thinking, well, that's probably the easiest way you, you just have that. But also, whenever there's networking events, that, that that's, you can go to meet somebody face-to-face, do that as well, do, do both. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, it, it's also what's going to be best uh, for you to engage with, right? Yeah. In, in the sense that sometimes you're in the position, I had a friend of mine who tried to set up a, uh, a 
uh, super PAC in the American presidential system, yeah. but specifically to try and flip a load of House seats blue. Yeah. Um, and he, in these kind of marginal districts in the United States. Um, but one of the things was he didn't actually have the network to donors yeah. uh, when he set this thing up. He was like going and talking to a few different people um, and when it didn't really work out and he ended up going to a different company. Uh, but he said one of his biggest learnings was, why don't I just reach out to people cold on LinkedIn? You know, yeah. do like a thousand of them, five of them are going to get back to me, yeah. you know? Um, and I think that people sometimes underestimate how receptive people can be about a really well-crafted email, right? Yeah. A really well-crafted message. Hey, I'm new to Dublin, would love to meet for a coffee. I definitely did that when I first got here. And I met with a few investors. I've done that as well in the past. And the thing about it is, by just saying that, people admire your honesty. They, Absolutely. You're yeah. saying mm-hmm. that, oh, oh. like when I first started doing what I'm doing now, I, I had no contacts in the area and I built them over time and right now if I see a startup and I said to them, to get to the next stage you need to talk to someone so and I, I know who they should be talking to so I'll say look, okay for this, that peer company or this person and, says, and uh, I can only go so far but I know another journalist that can get you to an, a, a further stage because they've got a wider audience yeah. or, I, or I know somebody who's a VC who might be interested in listening to what you've got to say. Now I can't guarantee you'll invest, but if he's interested in you, he might be able to give you some tips, and that's why you need to. VC tips are just as important as VC money. Oh yeah, 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 one hundred percent. And people, I think there's a there's a there's a variety of different currencies, right? Like there's not just the financial currency that yeah. we talk about, but like networking as a currency like context and knowledge on an industry as a currency, yeah. right? Um, connections and coffee and conversations with people who are knowledge, more knowledgeable than you in a particular space or function is, is a currency. And so um, a lot of people only focus on the financial. And that's a good thing for entrepreneurs, yeah. right? You can ask people for the other currencies. Yeah. Um, and, and oftentimes... But the biggest currency in most is someone's black book. They can get the black book and, and get, the, get the contacts and use somebody that can take mistakes further. That is more important than money. Absolutely, uh, yeah. In general, assuming that you have enough money to spend to go pursuing the black book, but yeah. yes, um, like the the black book in terms of uh, that network, both from the investment side, but also from the customer side, from hiring, that becomes really important. Kind of towards the later stages, a lot of the stages that Irish companies don't necessarily get to, they exit or they move by the time they get to those stages. But like the stage that Palantir was at when we were trying to go from say a thousand people to three thousand people, I mean like. We, we were asking every employee for their black book, right? Yeah. And we were saying, hey, uh, like, who are the smartest people that you know in this kind of area or this kind of space? Um, and we'll come talk to them, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, like, it does become very, very, very important uh, at particular po- points in your career. And it becomes especially important, I think, for startup founders when they're trying to build a great team around them, when they're trying to get investment, when they're trying to get their initial customers. Yeah, I feel the time, if you go to a VC and investment and you say, I'm looking for say 20k instead of using the 100k, it's 20k because what was it? I just want access to your black book. And I know that if you invested in my company, there's more chance you're gonna you're gonna uh, let me look at your black book. Yeah. And also making sure that when you invest in me, you, you're not gonna over invest or you don't in this scenario where mm-hmm. because you invest with money. Every day, this speech he's looking over your shoulders to know <laughs> what, what how you're doing. Yeah, 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 and that, like there is a different 
there's a variety of different styles of VCs, right? Yeah. There's some that very much act as if they're just bankers, you know, just a, a higher risk form of banking. Um, and then there's others that are like deeply entrepreneurial and they want to open that black book to you. I mean, I talked to somebody in Sequoia not too long ago and I was just talking about the idea of Sequoia investing in Irish companies. Um, and they were like, well, look, the, the major thing about that is uh, if I need, you know, I'm, if I need to give them a VP of engineering, I have a Rolodex yeah. that will tell, give you 500 VPs of engineering in San Francisco. I have no Rolodex for Dublin. Yeah. So how much value am I actually going to be able to provide? Um, and that was a really interesting kind of like, oh, yeah, light bulb moment for me. It's also, you know, gives you a sense of how that VC in particular would operate, right? Um, but when you talk about, uh, you know, the, the value that VCs are going to bring, and in particular the networks, that is going to vary from person to person. Yeah. And in particular, I think it becomes very interesting when you talk about angel investors and they have very, very different styles of engaging oftentimes. Um, so picking, you know, this is a, a, a luxury problem to have, but picking your investor can be really, really important actually in terms of the later prospects of your business. Um, and that's certainly a thing that was very prevalent as a talking point in San Francisco because there were so many investors and there was so much money and people weren't necessarily, you know, uh, needing to clamber over each other to get in front of someone. Whereas here, I think there's a little bit less of that. People are just looking for, say, the 100K or the million, um, and they're just happy to get somebody to do yeah, it. And right? the thing is, you're actually checking, is that person right for them? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it becomes very, very important when you get to the board level discussions, yeah. right? The discussions about pivots, the discussions about hiring, the discussions about firing, discussions about equity raises. Uh, you know, the board is going to have a huge amount of influence and, and in some cases, actual literal power over the CEO and the founders in terms of how the direction of the company. Um, and you want to make sure that you have good investors to be able to do that. Hey, last year, I interviewed Jim Heaslip, and he was getting involved in more on that kind of investing in startups. And his view was, I want a team behind, I want to I invest in a, in a team. So when I invest in a team, I don't spend every day looking over the shoulder. They don't see me every day coming in, how's it going, how's it going, that's. Mm. I want to be hands off. And he says, that's when I invest, I can invest in love and double me, invest in a pointy. He's done investment and also, his portfolio was so varied in tech, not, not all the same area, but everything invested and he knows that with, a team, with that team there, I can let them do the work. Mm. I'm just the kind of guy, just giving them to check now and again when they need it. Yeah. But you can trust them to do what they're going to do and they trust him, knowing he's not going to be handled. If you get somebody who's hands on, they don't know the area that well, but knows how to give that money. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure the money's been, been spent while you They're not going to actually uh, know the area too much. So when, they, you know, when they're going to give you advice that, isn't going to be right for them. Yeah, and I, I think that like that's the that's the bit about investors. Like we you know, sometimes we assume, or at least sometimes I assume, I'm a very trusting person all the time that somebody knows what they're talking about and they know what they're doing. Um, but investors are just like any class of of person, right? There are some good ones and there are some that are really bad, right? Um, and so they may not be able to assess the team in the best way. I mean, I would trust uh, or hopefully trust that Jamie Heaslip has been in so many team environments, especially high-pressure team environments, that he understands how the team dynamics should work, right? Yes, because he, a ro- ro- because a ro- exactly. he knows that basically that if one person in the team isn't pulling that, it falls down. And he makes sure that when he's going to business environments, exact same, it's all about a team. Yeah. And if one guy isn't pulling his, pulling the, pulling his, his weight, that's it, that guy's got to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he probably has a sixth sense about a lot of that stuff, yeah. right? Um, that's, that's hugely valuable. 
And then at the same time, you know, one of the lessons that I had from my time in Palo Alto was you necessarily don't trust somebody's experiences sometimes, yeah. right? Um, like, I'm sure Jamie is great, but maybe there's another sports person that you would think would have, like, great uh, understanding of team dynamics. Um, and actually, maybe they don't, right? Yeah. Maybe you just assume that because of the background that they came from, but actually it was another team member on their team that understood the team dynamics and actually was getting them in line, right? Okay, that's where you um, see, that's why I spoke to you very few of the rugby team Oh, guys in the past uh, you see involved in this kind of area because they probably know they can't do it yeah I, I, I don't know if it's you know it's like anything right yeah. you can any I'm a big believer that the human potential is limitless right yeah. uh, and it's really just a question of getting access to the opportunities uh, working hard at it and making sure that you're hitting the goals that you have sometimes it'll go quicker for some people yeah. and sometimes it'll go more slowly for other people um, but I actually um, I'm not a subscriber to the idea, you know, I'm very much a growth mindset person. I'm not a static mindset person. Yeah. And so I very much subscribe to the idea that if you are really passionate about being a great founder, or a great investor, or a great analyst, or a great strategy person, you can get there. It yeah. might be a little bit more of a circuitous route for you, depending on where you start. Um, but uh, you can get there. And I, um, I think in the case where people are thinking about investing, and it is really important, actually, from a macroeconomic perspective, the capital is available in Ireland for companies. Um, it is the, probably, to me, the biggest issue, that, the biggest differentiator that we have negatively versus other economies. Um, so if people are thinking about becoming investing, uh, an investor, you know, there is definitely a path there to understanding how to become a good investor. You know? I'm thinking of Wayne's World too. If you build it, they will come. Yeah, there's, there's an element of that, yeah. for sure. Um, we used to say that derisively yeah. in Palantir, um, in the sense that like sometimes you would get entrepreneurs that would come in and be letting their companies go. Um, there's a, the, the piece behind that mindset can be sometimes, well, if I just build the product, people are just going to buy it. And it's like, well, that's not exactly how it works most of the time, right? Sometimes yeah. that's how it works, but very, very rarely. Um, there's a whole other world of business that has to be appended onto that. Um, but in some senses, I do think that, uh, you know, in the case of the capital environment, you know, if you don't give, uh, if you don't give something oxygen, it's not going to live. If you yeah. don't give uh, plants sunlight, they're going to die, right? And so that's the way it is with businesses. You need to provide the starting capital. You need to provide the follow-on capital. You need to give them the financial room to be able to grow and to be able to do great things. Yeah, when I say build that, I mean, if they build the product, they will come with more or less species to be given the money because they built something that's good. So they're going to believe in what they built. Yeah, I think it, you know, and it depends on the investor, right? Yeah. Some are very much like, oh, you've built this product, cool, I'll throw a bit of money in and see where it goes. Um, some are a little bit more judicious and they're like, okay, well, what's this product going to do, right? I think that there's, uh, and it actually depends on how much capital is available. There's a lot of products, in my view, in Silicon Valley that were, have been funded over the last 10 years that were going absolutely nowhere, right? And they didn't have a clear market um, and they didn't have a clear story product narrative. Yeah. Um, but there was just so much money that they just threw money at it. Uh, in Ireland, it's actually the opposite problem in, in many cases, in that products aren't perhaps given as much life to see them, them all the way through um, because there's not as much capital to throw at it. They can't take as many risks, uh, the, the investors can't, but also the entrepreneurs. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a whole, you know, product problem fit, problem, uh, uh, product market fit and, and where the markets you go and how you grow those markets and scale and all that. I tend to come in kind of after the product market phase, um, typically, uh, where the people are trying to think about how do they scale kind of more generally and professionalize the business. Um, but I do think that when you're thinking about as an investor where you place bets, um, it's important to have a good understanding of what that risk profile. And you be. might tell in the moment, beauty investments, what you need, it, what you need to do is, is 
find knowing your product for the moment and then in about a year's time investment is, is clean up like this. If you get it too early, it tends to be blown and, and things it shouldn't load on, like launch parties or different things are oh, things yeah. that they want to have. Yeah, I mean look, there there was a ton of stories going around. Um, you know, that before this latest wave of huge amounts of capital in Silicon Valley, there was a, kind of a wave when I was there. Um, and there were these stories about, you know, people landing $5 million checks pre-product or whatever. Uh, and they would just go to a club and spend 100000 in, like, the local club or whatever, yeah. them and the founding team. Um, and it was very much like, you know, that that was very much looked down upon in the whole Silicon Valley yeah. ecosystem, right? The investor was calling them up the next day and being like, what are you doing? Um but, uh, you know, we sometimes, and to that point, right, we don't make the best decisions about how we're going to spend that money yeah. uh, and how we're going to get the right um, things in place. You know, a launch PR in Ireland for most, for the strong majority of startups in Ireland is more or less useless, right? Yeah. You need to be doing PR, you need to do launches, you need to get marketing done in your target markets, which generally is outside of Ireland, um, with some exceptions, right? Yeah. But in general... Uh, you're talking about going to the US, you're talking about going to the UK, you're talking about going to Germany. Um, so if you're spending 100000 on a launch in Ireland and the total addressable market in Ireland is 200000 well, congratulations, you have nothing left to spend yeah. on making any kind of profit margin. Um, whereas if you spend 100000 on something in New York with 10 bankers uh, that were in the top 10 banks in the world uh, and you're a fintech product, then congratulations, you've probably spent 100000 really, really well. Yeah, because I know that, I, I saw in paper a couple years ago, the Business and Business Post, there was a column in there for a while called The Secret Startup. Mm. And I, I don't know if you heard about that. No. There was no, a guy, no. basically, he was an Irish guy, and he set up a business, and the business was, was doing really, he didn't say what the business was, but I knew about week two what it was. So I was emailing this guy <laughs> saying, I know who you are and I know everything about it. Yeah. And it was an idea that he had, he had a business with a friend of his. The business was going okay, and then suddenly they got, they got bought out by somebody in America. Mm-hmm. And then he was told, okay, we moved to America, and then he was told, oh, we have to buy your friend out. Your friend can't involve anyone in business. So his best friend who he set up with was more than shoved out of the company. Mm-hmm. So he went across to, to, to America. His father was an Ireland well-known businessman who did very, very well. Mm-hmm. So he went, we went to America, and then we went to America. He's supposed to do things their way, and mm-hmm. not his way. And the thing is, if you're buying a startup, they, they have to be left for loans of to do things the way they've always done it. Mm-hmm. Because you wouldn't, if, they, if they did things your way all along, they wouldn't be where you wouldn't have bought them. Yeah. So, and he, he, he wasn't that close. So he ended up, this guy ended up drinking and getting the same oh, wow. because he, he just couldn't cope going in yeah. and stuff and he was doing things and he came and drinking and he got into work the next day half pissed or hungover. Yeah. And uh, after a while, the guy is basically, he left the company yeah. and he's, he's now going around the world backpacking. Ah, well, that's good. And uh, when I was chatting to him, I said to him, when you get back to Ireland and if you decide to reveal who you really are on the podcast, I promise you, I'm not going to mention anybody who you are because mm. I don't want to spoil the mystique of this. But it was great to see somebody ex- go through highs and lows of, of, of what went on. And mm. his business is, to this day, it's still going very, very well. Mm. But when you hear that, you're thinking, what could have been? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I have that is one of the major differences that I found in the mindset between my friends in 
just in the US, right, more generally. Mm. And also, and I think this is a European thing. It's not specifically Dublin. It's also what I've noticed in London as well, is that investors and entrepreneurs are very much thinking about how do I exit? How do I extract the financial capital back, right? Um, whereas in America, it was like, we're building the next Apple. We're building yeah. the next Google. We're building the next Facebook, right? Um, and that was kind of the mindset. Now, not universally, of course, uh, but there was definitely a lot more of that than what you find necessarily in Dublin and London. And the consequence of that is, you know, sometimes you exit, your company gets acquired, uh, you end up working for them, and you absolutely hate what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and that's a really thing to be, really important thing to be kind of was a couple years ago, about five ten years ago, Gideon Motors bought Volvo. Mm. And when normally when a company bought with somebody else, you then brought in the family and you think, but Gideon mm. said to Volvo, do it your own way over there. We're going to build some of your models of your cars in China for the Asian market. Yeah. But we'll give the money, do what you've been doing and leave it on your own. Yeah. Most startups, when they get bought over, they don't get that opportunity of doing that. I've been able to do Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to think about it as well from the perspective of the acquiring company, right? They're going to be thinking, okay, I bought this company for several reasons. Either to get their customer list, to take their yeah. product, to hire their, their team, or to take them out of the market. Yeah. Um, in all of those scenarios, it's not really helpful for me to have them off there on their own doing their own thing, right? Um, the, you know, it works at the corporate level because essentially you believe that it's a profitable business that's yeah. been undervalued and that you want the profit lines to go to your, your you know, uh, to your financials yeah. so that's you know that's a kind of a different mindset to the startup one in general in the technology sector and in this, the startup world if you're going to go through an exit and it's going to be an acquisition um, you know be prepared that like you are going to lose essentially a, a huge ton of stuff Unless you're LinkedIn and you're acquired by Microsoft, right? Yeah. But even then, uh, you know, I would I would say that LinkedIn there's a certain amount of the product features that haven't been invested in that probably would have been if they stayed independent. So yeah, I'm looking at basically sometimes when startups bought over, the ethos in the company changes, and what they were mm. doing is going and like engaging with them in two years time. All the key co-founders have left. Mm, yeah, because it's not what it, not what it once was. Totally. Well, one of the more fascinating things to me, and this has been true of every company I've worked for and every client I've ever had, is that they have a very specific culture. Right? Everybody knows that about organizations, but almost all, always is the culture defined by the founding team. Right. Um, where the office is based is almost always defined by the founding team. Yeah. Um, where what market they enter into, what they're willing to tolerate, what they're not willing to tolerate from the people that they hire, um, you know, that's very much defined by the founding team. And so if you're a founder and you're used to that, if you're used to setting the culture, if you're used to setting the pace, if you're used to setting your own environment, and then all of a sudden you're in an organization where somebody's saying, no, 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 these are the rules, and yeah. this is the culture, and this is the environment, and now you do what I tell you, um, you know, I, uh, I think most entrepreneurs or the most founders won't take that too well. Before we finish off, what advice would you, or probably wisdom would you give to anybody in the startup space? It depends on the stage, right? So if you're thinking about like starting up a company, I think, and I talked to a friend of mine about this recently, the, probably the biggest thing to understand is, look, if you're starting a company, if you're going out on your own, unless you've already landed your first customer and your first bit of revenue, like before you leave your job or before you quit whatever you're doing to go and start this company, like be prepared, it's gonna be a rocky road yeah. for the first few years, right? You're gonna spend a lot of your money. Uh, be, you know, I had a friend of mine tell me a few years ago, uh, she set up a property portfolio business in the UK and she was like, look, we knew going in, her and her husband, we knew that we needed to have two years of runway before we started making any real money. 
right? Um, and I think that's a good rule of thumb in general uh, is just like, it's going to be two years before you get to the point where you can afford anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that also includes like going on holiday. And that means going and shopping for something nice for your mom like you used to do every Christmas um, and that kind of thing. So just having a cognizance and an awareness of the, you know, the initial story is, is usually pretty rocky and pretty hard. Um, there are, of course, exceptions. Sometimes you get a huge check from your uncle or something like that, yeah. you know, um, or you land, you know, uh, say one of my previous companies, uh, the CEO had left IBM and IBM was one of his first customers, right? So that was like, you know, a very interesting dynamic and that he already had a revenue stream as soon as he started the company. So there are other ways of getting around it. Um, as you go further, I think the important thing is, you know, when you go to, you know, a seed or a series A or a series B or a series C is get as close to your customers as you possibly can. I think the mistake that I've seen uh, with a few of my clients has been, you know, they're here in Dublin, they have clients in London and New York, um, but the acceleration of the revenue growth really happens when they go and they spend a few months in New York, right? Um, and the, the conversations just go quicker. Um, just in general, my observation has been the sales cycles are much, much shorter in the US than they are, are here in Ireland. So you're sometimes... Uh, you know, constraining your own company's growth by staying here for too long yeah. um, and making poor assumptions as well on what the actual sales cycle is, what the actual total addressable market looks like, what the customer profile is going to react to, how buyers respond and behave um, until you actually get close to your customers. So, and that includes for people who are more in the, say, B2C space to get close to their users uh, and continually do that because that's going to, you know, fuel everything else. I guess basically they don't, they're used to the Irish market and don't worry, when you go abroad, you have to face different, different customs, different way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's a there's an element of this, which is I don't want Irish customers, Irish uh, clients of mine or Irish companies to necessarily leave Ireland and, yeah. and move all their staff there and all that, right? Um, but I do think that it is really important that if you're building a business that you are very close to what the customer wants and what they need, right? And there's an element of that, which is what the customer thinks they want and what they actually want, you know. But in a very, very specific way, understanding their business and understanding how they buy, understanding their problems. I mean, you're only going to get, you're not going to get that from a few Zoom calls a month. You're not going to get that from uh, from hypothesizing about yeah. it in a, on a whiteboard. You're going to get that from actually talking to them and working with it's them. It's like why Google and the center come to Ireland because they want to be close to the customers. Yeah, 100%, you know. Um, and like Google's field offices is based in, mostly in London. Um, you know, like they're flying all around and they're yeah. working with eBay and whoever the hell else is on their account books um, to really embed and understand what their goals are in advertising and, and how do they deliver that. Um, you know, the, it's, you know, where all these American multinationals make their money is Europe. They've built the product in the US, they've you know developed product market fit, they come to Europe to make their money. In some ways we have to think about that in the reverse, right? Yeah. Uh, Ireland and Dublin can be a great experimental ground for creating product and understanding product market fit, but when you really want to scale the company, um, you're either going to have to figure out to, how to translate into 27 languages or whatever it is in the European Union, or you're going to go to the US and you're going to, um, you're going to get close to your customers. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for the Owen and have a great day. You as well. Thanks.